0: This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals.
1: It's the week of September 12, 2016 and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 332 of Defender Radio. The word science is often used as a shield when discussing wildlife policies particularly management of predators in relation to depredation. Whether it's government, lobbyists for hunters and trappers, or even some wildlife protection advocates, the word can get flung around so much you'd think there's an endless well of studies on the subject. But there's a surprisingly small amount of reliable research available, and much of what has been published in journals has significant flaws. That means, to paraphrase the title of the study we're discussing today, wildlife management becomes a shot in the dark. Dr. Adrian Travis of the Carnivore Coexistence Lab, Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, along with his co-authors, published a study earlier this month in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment that looks at the existing science on this subject. Titled, Predator Management Should Not Be a Shot in the Dark, Travis and his team reviewed the majority of available studies on the effectiveness of depredation, and their shocking findings led them to recommend a suspension of all lethal predator control methods that do not currently have rigorous evidence for functional effectiveness in preventing livestock loss until gold standard tests are completed. To talk about his study, the research, and the ramifications he and his team may face for going against the status quo, Defender Radio was joined by Dr. Adrian Travis. Please note that a portion of this interview was re-recorded due to technical errors. Because I, uh, this actually got sent to me by a supporter who obviously saw it in Frontiers today. Um... And it's, it's a very, very interesting and I think a very important uh, uh, piece of science uh, because it's not... Thank you. It's, it's, well, yeah, and it's not proposing anything new, but it's looking at what exists and saying, you know, are are we doing good enough to, to warrant our actions and decision-making processes? Um, and I think that's maybe with a lot of... It, not necessarily environmental science, but when we're looking at these things that... You know, we're sort of, uh, some of these uh, ideas go back 50, 60 years. Some of them, of course, are, are newer, but they're based on the theories that, and again, you know, when I read a little bit about the history of uh, uh, wildlife management, it all goes back to game management. Like that, that was the basis for it originally, um, was to make sure there was enough deer left over to hunt. And that's sort of everything else has been built on that foundation, uh, and we haven't really questioned a lot of it scientifically.
2: That's true. Uh, so and actually, wh- um, I'm I'm aware and appreciative that you pay attention to the history of these things. And I think we're seeing a slightly different tradition in Europe, where, like you say, North America, predator control arose out of more game management. In Europe, it seems to me, predator control arose from a slightly different tradition. I'm not quite as familiar with it, but it has more to do with... Uh, nature conservation preservation.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's it's certainly true that we have learned a lot more. And you mentioned this in I, I believe in the introduction that we have learned a great deal more about the importance of predators in ecosystems just in the last few years. Yeah, um, you know it's it's going from a lot of theories to very very solid science and evidence showing like if we do not have these predators on the landscape really, really, really bad things are going to happen.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd say there's more and more evidence about that for predators. You're right. And what I'm even telling my students in class and have been for about 10 years now that there's kind of a paradigm shift where in the past, people concerned with biodiversity would always point to habitat loss as the major threat. And at the same time as we're seeing climate change rise as a a threat that affects habitat, but affects other things as well. We're also seeing this predator eradication as rivaling habitat loss uh, as a major, uh, major threat to ecosystem integrity and biodiversity.
1: Yeah, and that's again, this is something, and I've uh, I've talked about this with a few researchers now, uh, primarily in the sort of the ecological uh, uh, realm, but the whole concept of determining variables. And I, I think it's something that the public is not being taught about in school. Uh, I certainly, although to be fair, I didn't pay any attention in school when I was there, but <laughs> I don't think they brought it up in my grade nine biology class either. But it, it, when we talk about you know what could be causing a problem people, they, they often do that very, you know, the first and most obvious answer is likely the right one. And that's not necessarily a bad way yeah. to start thinking. But when yeah. we're looking at decisions of literally life and death or we're looking at decisions of millions of dollars of, of, of economics, we, we really do owe it to ourselves to use what you infer uh, refer to as the gold standard for scientific inference.
2: Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, that's actually what motivated us to do this review. Um, these studies are published in, you know, 20, 25 different journals, scattered, different, sometimes in different languages, um, from coming from many different countries and using different terminology. So we try to basically ask, so what's the state of the science right now, the state of the art? What do we know and what don't we know yet? Bring it all together in one place, summarize it and then apply sort of accepted standards. So we sort of wanted to apply accepted standards of evidence and and we borrowed from the clinical uh, trials and biomedical research for that and then used the term gold standard and silver standard as a shorthand because we knew we needed to communicate this to policymakers and the public and to journalists like yourself in a way that could be done efficiently and quickly. So that's how the gold and silver standard came about
1: yeah and I think it's very important again because the the concept on the face of it is really clear but there's a lot of nuance that has to go in to uh, yeah. to to very stringent controls and variables um, and then yeah. you also have to play with your um, what you call it? I can't even remember it now it's been a long day yeah um, <laughs> Uh, uh the uncertainty factors that's the yeah um, yeah like all of these different things should be playing into it but then we have and I admit guilt for this and I think I actually mentioned this to you in the past is you know you look at the headline and you say oh well that's what the study's about yeah. and one that my wife brings up all the time uh she's a social worker is the red wine is the same as an hour at the gym okay. headline that Uh, came up about a year ago. And everyone said, oh, I'll see this and that. And then if you (laughs) actually read the study, which on her prompting I did do, it's about uh, uh, the chemical that is similar to one found in red wine when applied to rats in a laboratory setting who were then tested for longevity of skeletal developments. Over the course of six months, those that (laughs) consumed this chemical had a slightly better thing. But in some interview somewhere... Um, the connection was made that this is found in red wine and that it's the equivalent of doing a lot of work uh, or it improves the work. And it just it evolved into this thing. And the scientist in a CBC article actually um, mm-hmm. came out and said, I don't really understand how yeah. this happens. Um, but it's, it's a great example of that. And I think when you then add on, and again, coming back to the very specific topic you have written about in the study, uh, you come back to the predator control. This is not just, um, you know, maybe some not quite right science or some errors uh, with the media playing on that. But it's hundreds of years of prejudice and old wives tales and culture, even. Uh, particularly, I would say in the Midwest for, for uh, you in America, for us here in our Western provinces, that this is simply how it's done.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And um, so tradition and institutional cultures have tremendous inertia, very hard to move. Uh, we don't expect our study to uh, push the needle very far. But we, what we're hoping is that by calling for a higher standard of evidence uh, used by the researchers to start with, we're going to push the needle even further. Because if the journals and the peer reviewers and the other scientists studying this become aware that uh, their paper may be classified as silver standard if they don't try hard enough or if they do try harder, they get the gold standard. You know, we're not setting up a certification, but we are setting up some simple guidelines that we hope journals can
1: follow. Well, And what I found very interesting is that um, you found uh, 12... flawed tests now again this is looking at the effectiveness of lethal control on depredation for livestock all of these they all came from north america and i love this little in a nutshell thing. Okay. by the way okay. that um that frontier did that that's for me that's perfect because then i can go through and hear your key points and i can go and find them right anyway uh, but you. So I, I can literally read this back to you now. <laughs> Ten of twelve tests were published in three journals, compared to three of four te- Twelve tests with strong inference in those same journals. So you actually found, and it's it, and you make it very clear that you're not saying the science was bad, but there were issues, issues that were even noted during the peer review yeah. process, but were not addressed.
2: Right. right. In fact, uh, some of the flaws that we found in the studies should have been flagged by peer reviewers. The editors of the journals should have said, you know, revise this or redo the experiment before you publish it. We really feel that some of the flaws are so uh, obvious in design. On the other hand, there are also some studies that suffered from accidental uh, events in the
0: field. What I want to emphasize here is that These experiments are extremely difficult to run in the field. Maintaining a gold standard experiment with random assignment under field conditions is very challenging. And we're not accusing anyone of intentionally biasing their results. Nevertheless, some studies should not have been published or should have been published with extremely strong Warnings and caveats that the findings cannot be, uh, that the findings might not be reliable because of the events that occur in the field. So, we point to two examples of gold standard experiments so as to encourage our colleagues and ourselves to try harder, try to achieve the gold standard, because that's what the public deserves. Government policy shouldn't be based. On
1: weekend friends, well, and again, I mean that that can be uh, just as it is when you talk about the actual circumstances in the field. That could be any one of a hundred possibilities. And the 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 goal to me would not be to say we have found and assigned blame. It's that we have found and are now looking at solutions. Right, like it happened, and you can't change that, but you can move forward and be better. Um, Now, exactly. This I I look at this, and again, I have an obvious bias. Uh, I, I am in support of non-lethal methods for a number of reasons. Uh, some of them okay. emotional, some of them scientific. Um, okay. It, it, some of it's just logic to me. Like if we've been doing this for two hundred years and it's still a problem, eh, yeah. maybe we're not doing it right. Um, yeah. But when I look at this, and I see sort of. The even just the, the number of studies available showing non lethal versus lethal control is yeah. that s- significance in itself that the non lethal methods are simply not being looked at as much.
2: Um, no, not necessarily. Actually, what we think one so one take home conclusion for us is that uh, if you take the earliest study, 1978, to the present day, we're talking what is that 38 years. We don't even find 38 studies that meet the gold or silver standard for testing the functional effectiveness of a method. That's actually really surprising. Less than one per year across two huge continents where you know predator control is being done routinely. That suggests there's, uh, it's not actively being studied. It's not sufficiently scrutinized. Because uh, you would never find that in the, say, the biomedical field with a particular kind of medicine or addressing, say, cancer. There are clinical trials every year in probably every state in the nation. So it's, an, it's a basically an understudied phenomenon. And that's a problem in, in and of itself. And then when you look at the results for functional effectiveness, we find an odd pattern, namely that a large number of studies of lethal methods are flawed and they don't show a good record of effectiveness. So I would actually argue that the non-lethal methods have been studied um, more scientifically with you know better methods. And they're also showing uh, greater effectiveness and none of that counterproductive riskiness, where you get livestock losses increasing, as we found with several of the lethal methods. So just to wrap around back to your point, it's not so much the non-lethal methods haven't been studied, maybe because of their, their more recent, you find the older studies are all of lethal methods, but we also find a great number of flawed studies in the lethal methods. And by the way, Michael, that's in the supporting information to the paper, the description of the 12 studies and why we found them too flawed to include.
1: Okay. Um. Now, we're, we're, again, when we look at this, the study as a whole, mm-hmm. something that stands out to me is the the recommendation is that policymakers suspend predator control efforts that lack efe- evidence for functional effectiveness, yeah. and that scientists focus on stringent standards of evidence, as as you've said. Yeah. Um, when I look at this, and now it was obviously sent to me because um, I, I'm not sure if it's because they they heard our last interview that we did together mm-hmm. on your other study, or if it's simply just a, as I said, it's a very uh, on the face of it just a very interesting. And as I read it to me, it seems very groundbreaking uh, in terms of what it will mean for policy. But when we look at this, you're not saying don't use lethal control. You're saying. Stop doing things that doesn't have that sort of body of evidence to support its effectiveness. Correct. And I think that's a very important distinction for both for for my audience who are, who are primarily wildlife lovers, but also for those who do use lethal control. Yeah. Uh, and who may immediately object to something like. This.
2: Correct. And and you know people will take whatever message they wish out of our study. We're sure about that, but we're hoping those who Promote lethal methods will pause a second and say, okay, we do need good evidence, and now let's, you know, let's take a look at the methods we're using, because there are so many methods out there for lethal control that we found zero studies of no silver standard, gold standard test of effectiveness. That's true for non-lethals as well. So we're hoping it at least makes people pause and think. And hopefully, they'll fund the research that, that we think is needed. And let me go back to your first point. So we do recommend to policymakers not to use the methods that uh, have not been proven effective. We, we even go further and suggest a moratorium on the lethal methods because of those counterproductive increases in livestock loss. It's not just the two studies in Table 1, either. In our paper. Those two studies are the ones that really met all the criteria. We had to set aside approximately that didn't quite achieve the silver standard.
1: Sorry, how many did you set
2: aside? You you cut out three. three Yeah. We also set aside three that initially we had included, but uh, on reflection and with a consultation with colleagues, we acknowledged they didn't quite make the silver standard. If you will, they sort of met the bronze standard. I think the researchers could reanalyze their data and reach the silver standard. It would just take a small tweak in their methods, but we couldn't do that for them. And so we actually are concerned that there are more studies with uh, counterproductive increases in livestock loss. That are out there. I can name them. We actually name them in the paper, but we don't include them in table one because they didn't reach the silver standard. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's something that uh, I know talking with people who do work in the field on uh, uh, depredation issues, um, and this this ranges from you know my personal friends who who do coyote hazing through to um, what was his name, Carter Niermeyer, who's a former USDA. Yeah uh agents and he wrote a book called wolfer yep. but this is a a in this side of that argument very commonly talked about is how frequently carcasses are found. yeah and the actual cause of death is never truly determined like yes and and you do bring up of course there are times when you know there is a coyote killing an animal yep. in front of you that can't yeah. happen but these you know how often are we blaming a predator or a specific species of predator over another one um, for a certain death? And I've even heard of, you know, uh, in my area in Ontario, roaming dogs in some farming communities. Yeah, that can
2: be serious.
1: And then all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden, well, it's coyotes doing it. Yeah. And you, you sort of, you you launch into the action response to yeah. that. Um, and I think that's something, like, how do you... Is it possible, even then, when you look at these national data banks of losses, to really understand how you know uh, how accurate, like the base data you're working from is?
2: Yeah. Okay. So I have two things to say about that. One is uh, you'll be interested in research coming out of Chile, where they do not have coyotes. They do have free running dogs, and the other canids are fox sized. They're smaller, so it's very uh, unlikely that you're going to confuse a dog depredation with a fox depredation. Yeah. And in in Chile, they're finding that dogs are causing a lot of the livestock damage. So I would encourage you, if you want to do a piece on that, I'll put you in touch with a team of Chilean researchers who are studying these free-running dogs.
1: Yeah, that would be fascinating.
2: Yeah, that's one thing. The second comment I'd make is that you, in a sense, hit the nail on the head about the uh, effectiveness of verification. We actually don't have any blind studies that ask whether these field investigators are accurate Mm -hmm. when they blame a particular carnivore. So one hope I have is that our paper actually encourages better scientific standards across the board when it comes to predators. So can you imagine a a double-blind test In which the the identity of the predator is known to the researcher and then the field investigator goes in who does not is not aware and um, uh, the researcher is not aware Uh, you know with the double blind both the researcher and the field investigator don't know part of the picture but when they put their information together we get a much better glimpse of how accurate field verifications are yeah. So we actually need a gold standard test of the, the phenomenon you're talking about.
1: Well, and that's even, um, you know, you look at, uh, and I'm thinking again of sheep. Um, if you find a, a, a sheep carcass in the corner of your lance with a coyote standing over it, yeah. and there's clearly no other bite marks. The coyote is the only carnivore around, yeah. and there are clear bite marks on the throat, the hind, all of the regular areas. But are you doing a blood culture to determine if this animal was diseased first and died right. of some other cause. Right. Um and I know that again that's one that uh Neermeyer brings up a lot in his yeah. book is how did these animals die and then did all of these other carnivores just say hey happy meal?
2: Exactly. Um
1: and come over for a snack. Yeah. So there the, there are a lot of questions around that. Yeah. But what I would like to end with uh uh with you and I think this is this is something that I wonder mm-hmm. at frequently um is the culture within science. Now it uh, in an ideal circumstance, science should constantly be challenging itself. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's the nature of it, yeah. really. But I also know that things like uh, um, uh, tenure and funding and politics all play into it as well. Yeah. So it's not too often that we, the public sort of get a glimpse at this of someone saying, we looked at all of this research and found serious problems. Therefore, we need to have a long talk about how we're researching and how that affects policy. Um, So is that something that concerns you Is as you publish something like this, which again is challenging programs that spend millions of dollars a year, tens of millions of dollars a year, Based on science, that seems that it may have some very inherent flaws. Like, are you worried about that potential blowback or the, the politics of the academic and scientific community?
2: Yeah, again, Michael, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I expect uh, blowback. In fact, I expect reprisals. It wouldn't be the first time where our conclusions didn't fit with the status quo or the establishment position, the government policies and we suffer as a result. We lose grants, we lose career advancement opportunities. In some terrible cases, we lose colleagues and friends. Not uh, They don't die, they just leave. They can't work with us, it's not safe for them. So I'm gonna get on my little soapbox here because this is something I feel very strongly about. The public is best served by the system of academic freedom that gives scientists complete independence from reprisals, from concerns about their salary and the safeness, their tenure, the safety of their positions. The public is best served by that sort of academic freedom and uh, guarantee on the independence of the science, especially that science which is feeding into gr- uh, programs where taxpayers are paying for it, and especially those programs where wildlife, which are a public trust asset, are either benefited or harmed potentially by the actions. Under those circumstances, the public, the taxpayers, should be crying out for independent science because that's the only guarantee that they're getting the best evidence. It's not going to be perfect, but that's the guarantee for the best evidence, not influenced by interest groups, not influenced by political agendas. So, yes, I the blowback, but it's worth it to speak truth to the broader public and serve the interest. That thing, that it was the public that trained me, that paid for uh, my training and much of my research. Not only do I have an ethical responsibility as a professional, but I think it's a moral responsibility in both Canada and the U.S. We have something called the public trust doctrine, which is uh, in the US i believe a constitutional protection for the environment and for wildlife and a duty for government to account transparently in a sophisticated manner so uh you know i'm living the ideal and i expect to suffer the the re- re- reprisals that happen the criticisms that come and some of that is healthy some of it has become unhealthy especially in the wildlife
1: yeah there's uh, i think that's probably going to be true wherever you have very large sums of money um, and very passionate people on both side of it who will often um, act unprofessionally, I'll call it. Um, And that's something that we see too. You know, I get the occasional letter email um, and uh, you know, you kind of have to roll with it to a degree. I think for us, it's a little different obviously because we are an advocacy group. Um, But you know, that's, that's sort of what it is. And it's, it's, it's good to know, though, that there are scientists out there like yourself, like your team, who will just yeah. do science. We're,
2: we're going to be accused of advocacy, of having a bias, of course. Um, and that's where the partnership with media and groups like yourself, uh, that, that's so important. Because you're speaking to the public, you're able to evaluate the evidence yourself and convey it to the public. And then all the criticism is easier to, uh, to live with on my end. That's right.
1: And, and finally, what what would you like to see? Like now that this is out there, this is in a, a reputable journal, it's being shared. Uh, as as I said, it's I think it came out today, mm-hmm. and I've already been messaged about it. Um, Good. So what what do you hope to see from this this study? Sort of being spread uh, throughout the world.
2: Uh gosh, if even one local government uh, respected the moratorium and then try to fund a gold standard study for the method being used in that locality, I would feel that we succeeded. So you know how it's often said, if you change one mind, you've, you know, you've done a good job. Here, if, we've changed, if we change one government, I feel like we've done a good job.
1: To learn more about Dr. Travis, his team, and their research, follow the links on this week's Defender Radio podcast blog. That's the show for this week. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.